The other day I had an experience that I would bet every parent in this room has had. And it just never gets old. I was getting ready in the morning and in our bathroom. And my two sons are in there with me. And you can just imagine what happens when you have sons watching dad get ready. And so I'd shave and suddenly my two boys needed to shave. I don't know if you've noticed their face, but yeah, so, so they get the, the shaver out and they're shaving and uh, praise God, I don't use a straight edge or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> we just stop it and, um, brushing the hair and they use my brush to brush their hair, which is a little creepy, but, um, <laughs> you know, there, there's certain hygiene things that I'm sensitive to and, um, not to get too graphic, but I use my deodorant. And I look over a little too late because they're using my deodorant. And I'm like, now this is really gross. And I caught them just before my toothbrush went in their mouth. <laughs> and we had a little talk about hygiene. And, you know, it's great to, great to copy dad. But there's limits to that. But what a reminder. I would bet every parent has had those times where your kids so so visually copy you. And they're copying us every day, and they're copying and learning from everything we do. But that is just a, a visual image of what's actually happening every moment of every day. And as we just had our, our parent and child dedication, it's a commitment to be that kind of model. As we come to 2 Timothy, we, we come to a very personal letter between Paul and Timothy. and A personal letter because Paul knows that he's getting to the end of his life. And we'll review some of that, that background in a moment here. But Paul is now trying to pass the baton to his son in the faith. To his son that he wants to imitate him. That he wants Timothy to copy him. And when I think of my boys and, and my daughter, I think of that because... Okay, yeah, we can laugh about the toothbrush thing, but I want to pass on my faith to them. There is nothing I want more than to have my sons and my daughter grow up loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind and strength and to have them following God. And so I want to pass the baton. And, and I've talked with parents, and I know we did the surveys at Mother's Day and Father's Day, and that was overwhelmingly the number one response of moms and dads to what do we wish for our children to pass on the faith to follow God and so we come to second Timothy and that's what Paul is doing with Timothy and so turn with me to second Timothy turn with me there and we're going to, to start the book and Paul gives a greeting he gives some introduction and then he jumps right in with passing the baton and, and preparing Timothy to really take over his ministry. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy. Thank you. Do what I mean, not what I say. No. <laughs> As a parent, have you ever? Never mind. <laughs> 2 Timothy chapter 1. Let's read the first two verses. The first two verses are a greeting. Pretty standard greeting, but it gives us a chance to review the background of 2 Timothy, which helps us understand what's going on here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the first thing we see in the greeting is who's it from? And I love letters of ancient times. Because I think a letter should start with who it's from. That gives you a context. That gives you an idea of what this letter's about. And he starts by introducing himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, or a sent one, a messenger of Christ Jesus. Now that's one of the clues that we, we have as, of several in the book to know that this wasn't just for Timothy, but was to be read to the whole church. Paul didn't need to tell Timothy he was an apostle. He didn't need to give his credentials to Timothy, but he knew that Timothy would read this as a personal letter and then pass this on to the church. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, by God's intent, by his purpose. And to really get the, the force of that, I'd like to, to stray a bit and give a little bit of the background of 2 Timothy. We did this for 1 Timothy, but it's helpful to understand where Paul is writing from and what circumstances he's writing from 
to see the power of even that statement by the will of God. See, there's a, a history between the books. And we gave a possible order of events when we started 1 Timothy. I'd like to review those. Jacob, if we could go to the map. I love maps on introductions. <laughs> and we know that at the end of Acts, in Acts, 20, in Acts 28, we see Paul under house arrest in Rome. In fact, if you flip back to Acts 28 for a moment, and Rome is over here. You can see that in that large print right there. So that's where Paul is. He's under house arrest. And turn, flip back to Acts 28 with me, verse 30. Acts 28, verse 30. And it's talking about Paul and, and his house arrest in Rome. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And, and the wording there is very important because it lets us know the kind of arrest that Paul is under. There were several different um, ways that you could be held. In this case, it's house arrest where he's still paying rent, he's still providing for his food and all of that. People could come and go, but he was limited to his movement to his house. And so that's a very different situation than we see in 2 Timothy. Because of that, and a whole number of other events that we see and clues we see in 1 and 2 Timothy, we, it is quite possible that Paul was released from Rome. And I say quite possible, we don't know for sure, we don't have a history book, but we're just basing it on things in 1 and 2 Timothy where he says, I traveled to Troas, or I traveled to Corinth in different places. And so a possible order of events that helps us understand is he was released from Rome somewhere probably around 61, 62 A.D. Interestingly enough, a law was passed in Rome at that same time that made it much harder to hold someone on a charge unless they were actually charged and they were brought to court. At this time, the Sanhedrin was going through their own trouble in Jerusalem, and so they weren't able to come and charge Paul. And that could have led to a series of events where he's released because then we see several places where he went. So after Rome, it looks as if he came over here to Crete and dropped Titus off, visited the church there, dropped Titus off and said, okay, Titus, you take care of things here. There were some issues with the church and, and we see some of the, the information about that in the book of Titus, which he wrote a little bit later. Um, so Titus is putting the church in order there. From, from there, Paul probably traveled up to Miletus here, and then up to Ephesus. And Ephesus, we, we've talked a lot about the background of Ephesus in 1 Timothy. The church at Ephesus was struggling at this point. You had some elders that were, were teaching falsehood, that were leading the church astray. You had some compromise in the church. And so at Ephesus, and Paul stayed a little bit of time in Ephesus, but that's where he left Timothy. And that was the background of 1 Timothy that we've been talking about. He left Timothy there and said, you need, to, you need to take care of some things. I need to get, um, keep going. I'll be back. But Timothy, you are charged with correcting the doctrine and correcting the attitudes and the actions of this church and setting this church straight. Now from there, he probably went up to Macedonia. And with Troas um, somewhere on the way, that's a port city, a nice city, he probably spent some time there, and then up into Macedonia and ministered at Thessalonica and some of the other towns there. Now, in Macedonia is probably where he stopped and wrote 1 Timothy and Titus because he had just left these two partners in the faith. And he left them in pretty difficult situations. If you, if you took someone and you were traveling with someone, you trusted them and said, here, I'd like you to stay here and deal with trouble, then probably a little later you'd check in on them. And that's probably what Paul was doing to encourage them. And he wrote Titus and 1 Timothy And then we see Paul coming down here because we see references to Corinth and Nicopolis and some of the cities down in Asia Minor, down in Greece. Now from there, we're not sure where he went. He might have, the church, some traditions say that at that point he may have traveled off to the west, you know, somewhere over in that nice country, and visited Spain and, and ministered to the gospel there, for the gospel there. We don't know that for sure. But we know that if he stayed here or if he returned here, around this time he was arrested again and taken back to Rome. 
And so arrested again, brought back to Rome. Now the setting this time in Rome was a setting where Nero is in control. And Nero is in charge. And from what we've talked about Nero, and historically, we know that Nero hated Christians. This was the man that would burn Christians as torches in his garden. And so there was a whole new level of persecution towards Christianity. And so for Paul to be arrested, this wasn't so much under a charge of the Sanhedrin probably, but probably a charge from Rome itself for dissension and for not worshiping the emperor. Much more serious situation for Paul. And so he's arrested, taken back to Rome. In fact, we know in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, we know that he's already had a trial in Rome. So now he's no longer under house arrest, waiting for trial, but he is in prison on death row. Very different case. He's had his trial, he's been convicted, and now he's waiting for death. If you put up that next slide, Jacob, here's a picture of some um, digs that they've done and what a prison might have looked like in Rome, and they, this is where people on death row were taken. And so you had this chamber up here where guards could come, and um, sometimes they would do a, a little trial up here, but then the prisoner was kept down here. And the only way in and out was this little hole. So the prisoner was usually thrown down there, and um, sometimes they, they have recorded incidents of prisoners actually just dying from being put into prison knock their head or something like that. And then occasionally they would throw some food and water down there. One of the, the um, ways that people died, in fact, the primary way that people died wasn't from the death sentence, but was from starvation down in this hole because they just weren't provided for. They weren't considered important. Now, eventually, if they were still alive, they would be executed. And it's probably in this situation that Paul was writing Second Timothy. Trials happened. I've been convicted to death. I'm in this dark hole. The only light comes in from up here. This, this cutout is just for our purposes. That's not what it looked like because prisoners could just run out. This is all underground. <laughs> I just realized what that looks like. Well, that's not that bad. Um, picture that enclosed and underground, dark. He has guards above him all the time. And so we see words, wording in 2 Timothy that is much different from 1 Timothy. Instead of, I'm able to minister, like at the end of Acts, um, unhindered, now he is in chains, or he knows that his life is ending. Turn over to um, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy 4, verse 6. A key verse to 2 Timothy in understanding the tone and the purpose of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4.6 For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so the situation of 2 Timothy is Paul knows that he's about to be executed. He knows that his life is short. And so what does he, and this is probably around 66, 67 AD at this point, uh, several years later. And so what is his purpose now of writing 2 Timothy? I can just picture him sitting there and, and, and thinking about what's going on thinking about the, the young men that he's discipled, that he's left, and, and Timothy, who he's handing off the baton of his ministry to. And so 2 Timothy is really a, a very personal letter about handing off ministry, about one generation handing off and equipping the next generation to continue the work of God in the face of all persecution. Now with that in mind, go back and read verse 1 of 2 Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. By the will of God. If I'm in a dark hole, hungry, thirsty, knowing I'm about to be executed, it's a lot harder to say this is the will of God. 
I'm where I am because God purposed me to be here. But Paul was still able to say, and that's why this knowing the, the history and the context of this makes that phrase for me just stand out on the page and jump out and convict me of all the times that I've been complaining about circumstances and angry at circumstances. And here Paul says, by the will of God. I'm an apostle and it's led to this. So right from the start, we see his character. We see who Paul is. That he has assurance that God is still in control. That he has assurance that, Paul, that God is watching out for him. And that's reassuring for Timothy. Because Timothy struggled with timidity. He struggled with boldness and not, not just jumping out there and, and some fear. And so for Timothy to hear that Paul is about to be killed for the faith, that could have been very discouraging. But Paul says, no, no, this is by the will of God. What a great way to look at any circumstances we might be in. There's times we're in circumstances that are not because of our sin, that are beyond our control, and God wants to use those for His glory. So by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. And again, that phrase has so much more meaning knowing that He's on death row just for believing in Christ and preaching the Gospel. The promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. And we studied in 1 Timothy that eternal life is both something we have now and something we look forward to, the already and the not yet. Well, for Paul, it was a little closer to what he was looking forward to. And so he was looking forward to glory with Christ Jesus. He was resting in the promise that no matter what happens here, I will be with Christ. And he uses that to encourage Timothy. So we move on to verse 2. This is the who it's to. So there's always who it's from and then who it's to in ancient letters. To Timothy, my beloved child. And, and again, we've seen different variations of his, his introduction. But here, this is a very personal statement. In 1 Timothy, it was my true or my genuine child helping the church at Ephesus know that Timothy had Paul's blessing. Now this is about Paul and Timothy and their relationship. And Paul uses wording, my beloved or my agapied child, the one that I have brought into my life. And it's a term of relationship. And when you're passing on the baton from generation to generation, the concept of relationship is so important. So Paul, right from the start, is bringing in this generational idea. You're my son. I love you. Even at the end, I love you. I want to talk. And he goes on as he's passing on this legacy of ministry to say grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And we see grace and peace often in a greeting, and that was a standard greeting, but grace, mercy, and peace, Paul always reminds in his greeting us and Timothy what we need to remember. Grace, unmerited favor, that we don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve God's love. Mercy is God's loving kindness on those in need. And for Timothy, who might have been discouraged, in fact, in First and Second Timothy, the pastoral epistles is the only time we see mercy added into the equation. And, and Paul is taking these young men that he's mentoring and say, you need God's mercy. Even when ministry is discouraging, know that God is a God of mercy. And then a reminder of God's peace. What happens as a result of relationship with Christ. And so Paul here is reminding Timothy, the, the man that he has ministered with, the man that he loves, that he, he probably brought to Christ in Lystra on his first missionary journey, his second missionary journey passing through, called him to be his partner. And Timothy joined him. And Paul is saying, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ reminding Timothy that Jesus was the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Lord reminding him of his sovereignty, that he's still in control of all things. And so in just a few words, in just two sentences, Paul sets up the book of, of 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, if we had to look at what it is, it's, it's almost like Paul's last will and testament. 
to a son in the faith. And, and think about that. If you knew that your time was in close to the end, what would you want to pass on? What would you want to tell your son? What would you want to tell your daughter? Probably at that point, it's not root for the Dodgers. Probably at that point, it's something much more important, much more valuable of how to live life. And so we come to Paul's last words. It's interesting. We have last words of some famous people recorded. Louis Mayer, a film producer, said, Nothing matters. Nothing matters. Tells you a little bit about his life. Thomas Edison, looking out the window right before he died, said, it's very beautiful over there. So he was looking for something outside of where he was at. Winston Churchill, right before he died, said, I'm bored with it all. I mean, I don't know where to go with that, other than he had experienced so much. Lady Nancy Astor, she woke briefly during her, her illness, saw her family around her, and so her last words were, Am I dying or is this my birthday? <laughs> but she had family around. And, and, and we have all these, these different kinds of last words. Mother Teresa, her last words right before she died were, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. But what would our last words be? And that's where we come to 2 Timothy. As Paul is purposing to pass on his ministry, to pass the baton of ministry. He's purposing to convey his last thoughts, his exhortations to Timothy, to con- communicate to him the cost of discipleship is great, but it's worth it. The cost is great, but so worth it. But also to remind him to continue the fight, to keep warning false teachers, to encourage him in how he conducts ministry. And finally, at the end, we'll see Paul says, come, if you can, come visit me. The time is short. So this morning, I wanted to explore verses 3 through 7. And just look at Paul's introduction. This is still part of the introductory material. Paul often would say who who a letter was from, who it's to, and then he would give some thanksgiving. But Paul, as a a master of, of words, would always weave into the thanksgiving his theme and what he was trying to communicate. So this morning I'd like to learn from Paul's experience, his example. To learn from how he talked to Timothy, how he started to pass the baton, so that we can be thinking, how do I pass the baton? Not only to my children, but to my spiritual children, to the next generation that will follow me at village, or wherever I am. How will I equip and enable people to serve God around me? Because that's what Paul is doing here. So we're going to look at two sections, verses 3 through 5 and then 6 and 7. But verses 3 through 5, Paul begins passing the baton by connecting Timothy to a heritage of believers. Paul begins passing the baton by connecting Timothy to a heritage of believers. He's giving us an example of how to pass on the faith. And he starts by by helping Timothy know you're not alone. You're part of a succession of faith that is much bigger than yourself and goes way beyond you. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. We see four things as he's connecting Timothy to a spiritual legacy. We see four things that Paul does that are things we can learn mightily from and that I pray become part of our culture at Village. The first thing we see in verse 3 is Paul encourages Timothy as a partner in ministry by communicating thankfulness. I thank God whom I serve as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. And so Paul takes the time to verbally communicate thankfulness. It's one thing to be thankful for someone in the church, right? It's a whole other thing to tell them that you're thankful for them. 
And, and you can be thankful all you want if you never tell them you're missing the joy of encouraging them and, and, and equipping them and passing the baton. So thankfulness is the first thing to remember. Paul here says, I thank you every time I pray. And that's constantly. But notice what he does. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. And so Paul is saying, I serve God. My forefathers served God. And now I thank God for your service of God. And he doesn't explicitly say, explicitly say for your service, but that's the context here. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience or with all my heart, with all my strength, as I remember you constantly in my prayers. And so for Timothy, Paul is saying, I'm thankful for your ministry, but it's a ministry in a long line of ministry. It's a ministry that follows my heart, Paul says. It's a ministry that I followed with my forefathers. And for Paul, that probably was referring actually to the Jewish faith. Before he came to Christ and those that were sincerely following God and seeking a Messiah. And then on that road to Damascus, Jesus met Paul. And Paul was changed forever. He was declared an apostle by Christ himself. And he entered ministry in a new way. But Paul here is tying Timothy to that legacy. That generational continuity is so important, especially at the end of Paul's life. But I I challenge us, how often do we verbalize to those younger than us, to those following in ministry, how thankful we are for their ministry? And and not just a, a casual thank you in the hall as we walk by, oh, thank you for but an intentional, specific way of saying, I appreciate what you're doing because I see God's hand in it. That is a powerful way to pass the baton. I know that, that my children, my boys, if I look them in the eye and I say, I am proud of you, you can see it in their expression, you can see it in their stance, This morning, Mark and I were talking and he had done something. I said, I'm proud of you, son. And he just, you know, I think he got six inches taller because dad was proud of him. Same thing's happening here. Timothy is saying, I'm thankful for what you're doing. I appreciate what you're doing. And even now, we love to hear, don't we, when there's someone that is over us or someone we respect that takes the time to say, you're doing a good job. I appreciate what you're doing. Wow, what an incredible way to make connections between generations and to start bringing up a generation to love and serve God. There's so many times that I know we feel it, that we're so thankful for what people have done, but we're so busy that we forget to take the time to express it. And so as we come to an action item out of this point and this, this part of Paul's example... We need to be thanking those in the next generation of ministry for their service. Verbalizing it. Take this week and tell someone at Village that you appreciate what they're doing. Especially those younger than you that you see are just trying ministry for the first time and and just getting into it and wondering, is this for me and can I do this? To have someone that's in a generation before them come alongside and say, Not only can you do it, you're doing a great job and I appreciate it. That has more impact than you will ever know. So Paul thanks God for Timothy's work just as we should be thanking God for each other's work. Second thing out of verse 3, part of the example of Paul, we see that he he was thankful for Timothy. And at the end of verse 3, we see that he was praying. He was a prayer warrior for Timothy. Paul is a constant, regular prayer warrior for his disciple. For this man of God. And he tells them. Again, if, if, if we never communicate that, it loses some of the power. But he tells them, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you night and day. And the idea of constantly there doesn't mean that... that Paul only was praying his entire time there. At times he ate and did other things. 
but that every time he prayed on a regular basis, it was an attitude of prayer that was just part of his life, Timothy was at the top of his list. Timothy was at the top of his list. How do we put that into practice? We do that by, and we've done this several times, committing to pray for someone in ministry here at Village. Committing to pray. Not just saying, I'll pray for you, have a nice day, but actually committing to it and doing it. Adding that person to our prayer list. Adding that person to the top of our prayer list so we don't fall asleep before we get to the end. I know that can happen sometimes. But taking prayer seriously to say, I will pray for you in ministry. And then letting them know that, which brings some responsibility, which brings some encouragement to them. I challenge us not to treat prayer as just an ending of a conversation. Oh, I'll pray for you. Have a nice day. But to treat prayer as a vital step in passing the baton to our next generation. A vital step of discipleship. Those of you and many of you are in discipling relationships. And, and these, this example of Paul is so key for a discipling relationship. Being thankful for that person, but praying for them. One of the ways that we communicate we're praying to someone is when we come back a week later and say, I've been praying about such and such. How's it going? It's a, it's a simple way of letting someone know that, that you're actually doing what you said you would do. Those are the kind of connections that we need to be building with each other if we're to pass on the faith. If we're to equip a generation for ministry. So in verse 3, we see that Paul is thankful for Timothy. He's praying constantly for Timothy. He's brought in the idea of legacy, which we'll cover more in verse 5. But then in verse 4, as I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. We see just a very personal statement. Paul is not ashamed to communicate genuine care and relationship. Paul is not ashamed to communicate genuine care and relationship. Now, their, their culture was a little different from ours. In our culture, so many times it's like, little boys don't cry. Big boys don't cry. Men don't cry. And we have this, this idea that men should never show emotion. But that wasn't the case in the, the Eastern mindset in the biblical world. It was okay for a man to cry. It was okay for a man to care about another man. In fact, it was essential if we're to walk life together and to hold each other accountable and to disciple each other. And we see a beautiful example of that with Paul. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. And that challenges us to care for each other. To genuinely care for each other. We're not sure when, when Paul is remembering here of Timothy's tears. Most we, we surmise that it was when Paul left Timothy in Ephesus with a daunting task. And that, that they're parting was one that was sorrowful. And Paul here says, I remember what you're going through. And I long to see you. What does it communicate to you when someone says, I long to see you? You can answer this time. Heartfelt love. Good. Genuine care. It communicates value. If I say, I, I long to see you, I want to, I miss you, you're communicating care and you're communicating relationship, you're communicating value. And Paul here reminds him of that. He anticipates a joyful reunion. I can't wait to see you again. It's going to be great. He's not ashamed to communicate genuine care and relationship. Again, like the other two items, I think we feel this toward people, but we get so busy and so caught up in life that we forget to actually show it. That we forget to actually act on it. And so the challenge to us is, how will we care for each other in the church? How will we communicate that? You know, A practical way of doing that is to notice when someone needs encouragement. To be watching people on Sunday morning, notice when someone needs encouragement, and then do something about it. 
So if you see someone that looks down in the gym or, or that is by themselves in the gym, or if you see someone that just looks like they're struggling, are you willing even this morning to go up to them and say, hey, I care about you. Can I pray for you? Little things like that start to change our culture to one of discipleship, to one of passing on our faith, of, of being partners in ministry. Sometimes we come and we're like, well, I'm, I'm coming to be encouraged. I'm coming for someone to, to minister to me. And I challenge you to come looking to minister. And as you do that, you'll be ministered to, guaranteed. But come Sundays looking to minister, looking to care for each other. Paul is not ashamed to communicate genuine care in relationship. In 1 John 4, we see John talking about love and what love looks like in the community of believers. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. These are commands. These are commands to care for each other, to love each other, to show it. And those commands cross whatever personality conflicts we might have, whatever water may be under the bridge. He just says, love one another as believers in Christ. And if we're to grow together, we need to be a people that love each other, that genuinely care for each other. So when we leave today, Will you notice people that need some encouragement? Will you look for ways to care for each other? So Paul, his example, we see that he's thankful for Timothy. We see that he's constantly praying for Timothy. We see that he verbalizes care and relationship. All essential ingredients to discipleship. And then the, the fourth one, and this is really the heart of this passage, Paul reminds Timothy of his legacy. Paul reminds Timothy of his legacy. Verse 5, I am reminded, and we've already seen it in verse 3, but in verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. And Paul here paints a picture of, Timothy, you're in a, you're in a succession of faith. You're a third generation of people that have followed God and love God. And, and that word for sincere faith is a genuine, a real faith, a, a faith that is, that comes out in every part of life. And so we see Paul reminding Timothy of his roots, instilling in him a heritage of faith. And what a powerful concept if we are to minister to remind ourselves that we stand in a line of believers. We stand on the shoulders of those that have gone before. And we, it is so easy to forget that, especially in our culture, our culture that celebrates being youthful, that celebrates being independent. And we see that all around us. And, and in culture, there's this idea that to be an adult, I have to separate from my parents. And while there's, there's a point to leaving and cleaving in marriage, that separation is taken to separate from their beliefs, separate from any traditions. And, and there's this sense that if I'm going to be an adult, I must be different. And that is killing our society. It is damaging our society. Because if we think about the benefits of seeing ourselves in a family, the benefits of seeing ourselves in a legacy, those benefits we can't get when we stand alone. Benefits like accountability. When we think through, okay, I have these people that have invested in my life, that are watching me, that have built me into, in the faith. And I'm not just talking family. I'm talking spiritual family here. When we know people have built us in, in the faith, that brings an accountability, doesn't it? They're watching me. I'm going to keep them in my life because if I go the wrong direction, they're going to pull me aside and say, Ron, let's talk. Walk with me. This is how you're blowing it. So that accountability is, is essential. One of the other things that having that legacy and knowing that we're in a legacy of faith gives us is encouragement and trials. 
encouragement in times of need. When Timothy, when he starts to get discouraged about ministry at Ephesus or wherever he is, he can point back to Paul built into me. And Paul in verse 3 said he had forefathers that built into him. And there's this line of believers that he's standing on the shoulders of that God has been faithful to every one of them. And he will be faithful to Timothy. We're going to see in 2 Timothy, especially chapter 2, that Paul then extends that to who's going to stand on your shoulders. Who are you then a legacy for? And will we be the weak link in that legacy, in that chain, or will we continue it? And so we see the importance of a legacy as as so much bigger than ourselves. Some of the other things it does, understanding that we're in a legacy helps us see a bigger picture and not just be me-focused. Our kids, when they're born, what's the world about? Me. Me. And and we try to train them not to be me-focused. Well, part of that is seeing a bigger picture that there is a progression of faith generation to generation. I think the last thing that that understanding a legacy gives is it gives us motivation. It challenges us to continue the chain. If I know that someone has invested in my life and they've given their all to walk with God and someone has invested in their life, and I don't want to I don't want to break that. And so that gives me a motivation and a challenge to say I'm going to continue the same chain. And so Paul here, in verse 3 and in verse 5 in the section, he starts the, the idea of passing the baton by reminding Timothy of his spiritual heritage. Timothy, remember your grandmother. Remember your mother. They have invested in you. They have invested in you. Henry Hines, you might know him from 57 varieties, ketchup and things like that. Um, Heinz wrote this toward the end of his life. Looking forward to the time when my earthly career will end, I desire to set forth at the very beginning of this will as the most important item in it, a confession of my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I also desire to bear witness to the fact that throughout my life, in which there were unusual joys and sorrows, I have been wonderfully sustained by my faith in God through Jesus Christ. This legacy was left me by my consecrated mother, a woman of strong faith, and to it I attribute any success I have attained. And so right from the start in his last will and testament, I am following Christ, but there is a legacy, it is a legacy that mom passed down to me. And by talking about a legacy passed down, we're not saying that you inherit Christianity. We don't become Christians because our parents were Christians. There are no spiritual grandchildren in God's eyes. We are either children of God or we are not. But it's honoring those that brought us to a point of faith in Christ. That have built into our lives. And Paul says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. And then at the end, I am sure or am persuaded, thoroughly convinced, dwells in you as well. So Paul sets the stage with those four things. And then in verses 6 and 7 is the call to action. It's the, okay, the therefore. Why did I talk about these things? And point number two on your notes, the genuine faith of both ourselves and those that have gone before challenges us to go and minister. The genuine faith of both ourselves and those that have gone before challenges us to go and minister. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, in verse 6, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And so Paul transitions here and says, for this reason, because of your genuine faith that has been passed on to you, I remind you, I encourage you to fan into flame the gift of God. And and the wording of fan into flame, it's like taking the embers of a fire and blowing on it and getting it to burn again. Ever do that? I I love doing that camping. A little harder this last trip because the wood was wet. And and so every time I'd get something going, it would just... But but my boys are watching me try to do this and and then they're blowing and it's a mess. But um, 
we're trying to fan into flame the embers, give it some oxygen and get it back to, to a flame. And that's the imagery that Paul uses for Timothy. Fan into flame the gift of God. Blow on it. Nurture it. Step out and minister for God. That's how you fan it into flame. You try doing it. You exercise that gift. And so Timothy's mentor is saying, remember your legacy. Let that motivate you to keep the chain going. Fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Probably a reference to his ordination again. We saw that in 1 Timothy where the elders and Paul commissioned Timothy to ministry and they affirmed the gifts that the Holy Spirit had given. And they affirmed his ministry. And Paul is saying, remember that legacy. Remember what's been affirmed in you. And step out and do it. Then verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And Paul here is introducing his charge to Timothy for ministry. He's saying, Timothy, it's not about fear. It's not about timidity or cowardice sometimes that's translated. But what God has given you through His Holy Spirit is a spirit of power or, or dunamis. Dynamite is where we get that word. And, and it's not the idea of being an overbearing personality, but that you have the strength and you have the power to do the ministry God has called you to, to do. And of love, an attitude by which we should do everything and, and every ministry and self-control, keeping your head about you. And so Paul's saying, it, God hasn't given you the fear that you're struggling with, Timothy. He's given you the ability to minister, the ability to love, and the ability to think wisely. And man, if we can pass on to the next generation that God gives those things, the power to minister, the, attitude, the right attitude to minister in, and the ability to be wise in how we minister, we are empowering them and we are equipping them to step out and do great things for God. And so Paul uses this idea of generations of faith to challenge Timothy to step out. At the bottom of your notes, you see a couple of blanks and a little stick man. That's you. And you see the blanks leading up to it. And if you take a pen, I'd like you to just write down someone that is invested in your life spiritually. To the left of the stick figure. So someone that is invested in your life spiritually. To the left of them, if you happen to know or maybe ask them sometime, who's someone that's invested in them spiritually? Grandmother, mother, Timothy. And then to the right of the little stick figure that is the self-portrait of us all, to the right is who will we be a legacy for? Who will watch our lives and know how to minister for God? What a, what a powerful, powerful idea that we are part of generations of faith and not just alone. As I train my young men and my daughter, but my young men, we talk about being men, whereas my daughter, we don't talk about how to be a man. I look Mark and Jeffrey in the eye and say, Are you, I, I'm going to train you how to be a godly man. That's my job. And there's times that we'll say, is this what a Johnson man would do? And I'm trying to instill a legacy, a heritage. Is that what a Johnson man would do? Or a Johnson man does this. And I've reminded them of, of Papa, of Grandpa, and what he's lived for and what I live for, and trying to use that to help them see a, a pattern but always, and, and I try to always bring it back to, a Johnson man does this because we honor God. If it's just about my own family legacy, that'll fall apart. That doesn't have the staying power as God's family's legacy. But my question to us is, are we going to be godly men and women? What does a godly man and woman look like? 
Will we honor that legacy that has gone before? As the worship team comes up, I'd like to read a little bit from Hebrews 11, where we see the same progression. We see a legacy described and then a challenge of how to live in light of that legacy. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, who were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all these, though they commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. And we read that and we think, wow, those are great men and women of the faith. Village, that is our heritage. They are part of the chain that is our spiritual legacy that we are the next link in. That we are asked to do the same things because we're part of that same sequence of generations. And so in chapter 12 of Hebrews, the author goes on and says, Therefore, since these generations of faith have come before, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Lord God, our Father, we praise You for the legacy you have given, for those that have gone before, some that have sacrificed their lives, that have been martyred for you, some that have taught such incredible things to the church and been pillars of faith, pillars of doctrine. And Lord, we stand on their shoulders for this time, for a time such as this, to serve you, to minister for you. Lord, may we be a people that then have broad enough shoulders for the next generation to stand on. Lord, as we study 2 Timothy, may you remind us that we are entrusted with the gospel to entrust others with the gospel and of your purpose. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.